The Torah portion this week is Truma. It begins in chapter 25 of the book of Exodus. We're about to have a huge shift in the story of Exodus, uh, beginning with this week, where um, the entire rest of Exodus is sort of all about this in many ways. It's all about the creation of, the impact of, the role of the uh, Mishkan, the tabernacle, and this traveling sanctuary in the desert for the next 40 years of their wandering. They don't know it's going to be the next 40 years of their wandering yet, but there will be. But we know. But what I started to say, what was interesting was this week, because I've been here obviously a long time, 34 years, next in a couple of months, 34 years. Some of you have been here longer, but... Um, and was a part of the building of this building on top of, in place of the older building that was also on the same site, for those of you who haven't been here that long. Um, and that's what that wall is right outside there that, that you walk by every time you come into this room. The wall over there on the right <clears throat> going out is sort of the, you know, the visual history of the tearing down of the old building and the building of this one. So every, and that wall called the Wall of History that we put there, we put there on purpose because uh, I've personally felt and feel very strongly that it's important to remember where we came from and that things don't just happen. Things happen. Buildings get built. Sanctuaries get built uh, for this, in the same way that this week's Torah portion says. Um, in the very beginning... As happens in more openings than any other opening, God spoke to Moses and says, "The barrel b'nei Yisrael, speak to the children of Israel." Basically, "Vayichuli truma me'et kol ish," and bring gifts from everyone. Asher yidvenuli bo which uh, is in this particular version translated as every person whose heart is so moved, which is good enough. Bring me gifts. What are the gifts for? Because God needs gifts. After all, wherever God might be somewhere, you know, bring me food that I could eat. We don't have that kind of God. Bring me gifts. What do they do? What's going to happen with these gifts? We're going to create the tabernacle. The gifts are what everybody's going to bring, the materials that are going to end up being used to build the sanctuary in the desert. Right? How did this building get here? How did this sanctuary get here? Everybody brought gifts <laughs> whose heart was moved enough to say, yes, I want to be a part of creating a new san- a sanctuary. That's how I got here. Didn't get here because Stephen Carr Rubin magically waved a wand and went, poof, the building is here. It got here because if you go out into the lobby and go left, there's a wall with a bunch of names on it, on this wall right over here that says Dorvador, I think it says up there, which was what we named that particular campaign, the capital campaign that, where we had to raise millions of dollars to build a building, this building. Right, And all those people whose names are on there, some of whom are sitting in the room right now, all those people whose names are on there are people who did exactly what the opening line of this Torah portion commanded Moses to tell people to do, which is to look in their hearts and see if they wanted to be, to participate in the creation of the sanctuary. And because they said yes... (laughs) To one degree or another, we raised enough money, you know, that's what it takes, and, and more than money, all the participation of all the people who made decisions about every single thing that happens in this building, every single thing, every surface, right, every acknowledgement or lack of it, every single thing is here because somebody, other than me, sometimes, sometimes me, sometimes also me, but the community and volunteers whose hearts were moved just like this for opening sentence in the Torah portion, they showed up to make all these decisions and create all this stuff. And so here we are, right? 
And here every synagogue is. And so I insisted we create a wall of of history so that everybody recognizes, even if we have a brand new beautiful building, which I thought we did, the congregation wasn't new. It wasn't a new synagogue. It was just a new building. You know, I was a Johnny-come-lately. The synagogue was officially dedicated, whatever you call it when you do that legally, not dedicated, in uh, 1950, right? So that's what our charter or whatever says, that we were incorporated as uh, the Jewish community of Pacific Palisades originally in 1950. And that we've gone through a bunch of names. All of them have Mickey Bienenfeld at the end of them. But all of those names, yeah. But we've gone through all kinds of names. Jewish community of Pacific Palisades. Um, but JCPP wasn't really the best acronym. Um, anyway, uh, when I got here, we were then, I think, Kehillah Israel with a TH that we then changed to Kehillah Israel to make it slightly more contemporarily Hebrew in keeping with uh, the way Hebrew is spoken in Israel. And But, you know, we've had various names over the years. Uh, in any event, I, I didn't want to pretend that Steve Rubin came along and created a synagogue. It, it, the synagogue's been here since 1950, the congregation, in different forms and versions. And so, to me, it's important, just the same reason we do this. Why do we show up here? Lots of reasons. One of those reasons is to connect with our own past, our own history, to say, who are we? Where did we come from? And we came from, oh, throw us over there, we came from thousands and thousands of years ago that created this. And this is our history, whether it's literally our history or not. It's our spiritual history. It's our emotional history. It's our sacred history. It's where we come from, and it's how we judge and see our, our own communal reflection. Who are we? So the first question is... No, not the first question. We'll read and I'll get to the question. So the first mitzvah in this week's Torah portion is for Moses to exhort the people to open their hearts and to bring gifts, right? By next week, when you're here, by next week, Moses says, stop, <laughs> enough. Moses is every rabbi's dream, right? <laughs> too much, too many people, they're all contributing too much, we don't need it, stop already. Stop already, right? I just want to be Mormon, that's all for one year. I just like us to be Mormon for one year. Everybody give 10%, whatever it is. All we need is one year of that. We'd be set for the rest of history here at KI if we just did that. But, which is why they're set, those Mormons, because they're smart. In any event, um, next week, Moses says, you know, Dayenu, it's enough because people show up. Because people show up. Because everything is based on community. And when the community responds, then the community is served. So that's what happens. So today, we start out with this notion of we're going to build this portable sanctuary. Why? Well, let's read another couple of sentences. They don't ask you why. So, these are the gifts. <clears throat> Excuse me. That <coughs> you should accept from them. Gold, silver. Everybody wants gold. Gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, crimson yards, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the aromatic incense, lapis lazuli, and other stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece, and let them make me... Oh, and now we get to my favorite sentence... In, the, in, in this portion and one of my favorites in the entire Torah. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of all its furnishings, so shall you make it. So all of these things, all of these materials are then, are now about to be expressed as building materials. You're going to build this out of that, and you're going to cover this with that skin, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, and blah, blah, blah. on and on and on. God as architect. 
This is, God takes many forms in the Torah. Next year I'm going to teach a class, The 70 Names of God. The Talmud says that God has 70 names. So I'm going to find 70 names and tell you what they are. But So next year that will be my adult education class. 70 Names of God. But throughout the Torah, God has different names. Uh, literally, in Hebrew. Um, God is Adonai, God is El Shaddai, God is El, Elohim, all these different ways that we refer to God. Uh, the, here, and God, because God takes different forms and different expressions, and we have different relationships with God. God is the warrior king who vanquishes Pharaoh and his armies. That's one of our God, versions of God. It's all the same God, but that's God manifesting that way. God as giver of the law, God as the God of Mount Sinai. What's the God of Mount Sinai? The God of Mount Sinai is the God who gives the Torah, who gives a blueprint for how to create a society. You know, we have the God of forgiveness, we have the God of punishment. We have the God of all kinds of things, all kinds of God of compassion. We have God that has all these different qualities. And throughout the rabbinic period, <clears throat> we use those qualities to literally be names of God. Harachaman, the compassionate one, is the name of God. You know, one of my favorite names of God is Hamakom, the place that was, the rabbis said, grew out of the earlier Genesis story that you all know of Jacob fleeing, running away from his brother Esau, said I'm gonna, he's going to kill him since he stole all his blessings, and being out in the middle of the wilderness, lying down, putting a rock for a pillow, having that famous dream, ladder, angels going up and down and up and down, and God standing next to him and saying, making a little deal with him, and Jacob wakes up, <clears throat> and in one of the most other most famous phrases in the Torah, says, Yesh Adonai b'makom hazev anochi lo yadati. God was in this place, and I didn't know. From which the rabbis say, ah, one of God's names is the place. Hamakom. You know, Yesh Adonai b'makom hazev. God is in this makom, this place. Because, say the rabbis, of course, the obvious that we all know, where is God? Any place. Any place where you encounter holiness. God shows up. You know, does God live in the sanctuary when there's nobody there? You know, is that where God hangs out? The lonely God waiting for us to show up. Is anyone coming for the morning minion? Oh, you don't have a morning minion. I'm really upset, says God. But I'll be there Friday night at 7 o'clock, says God. And Saturday morning for all the bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and Saturday afternoon for the other ones. And You know, we're into Hamakom. God is in every potential place or not. You know, it depends on how we act and what our relationship is. We evoke the experience of holiness, of godliness, of God's presence by who we are, how we act, how we interact with other human beings. Right? So, here, back to the question. God says, in one of these more famous phrases, Asuli mikdash v'shachanti v'tocham, make me a sanctuary. <coughs> <coughs> And as I so brilliantly write in my own Torah commentary that I passed out to you, um, just echoing the rabbis, frankly, it's just as important what that phrase doesn't say as it is what it does say. God doesn't say, build me a sanctuary so that I can live in it. God doesn't say, build me a sanctuary so that I can be in it. There isn't an it there's betocham. Betocham means among you, among them, among... It's about God's presence among people that matters, not the structure at all. So, by the way, the temple, once the temple was built, lasted for 410 years. The rabbis say that in this phrase that I just repeated several times in Hebrew was the, the Kabbalists, the mystics say, was the hint of exactly how long the temple would stand because um, Shekhanti 
which means, and I dwell, shechanti betocham, so I can dwell. If you divide it up into two words, it's shechan and ti, and the taf and the yud has the numerical value of 410. So shechan means dwell. So God is saying here, build me a sanctuary and I'll dwell there for 410 years. That's how rabbis think. What can I tell you? So, nothing like gematria. It's one of my favorite things. In any event, so why? So here's the why. Here's the question. Why now, in this moment in Torah, is God commanding Moses to command the people to build a sanctuary? What do they need a sanctuary for? They haven't had one. What's going on? Because they're wandering around. They they might feel lost. Ah. They might feel lost. Why? What do you mean? Because they lived in a place for 400 years. Ah, ah, ah. And then that was their place, regardless of how good it was. And then now they're wandering in the desert in the wilderness. And so they, they, they need a stronger will and soul. So they, they need something to... Uh-huh. So where did they come from, These this ragtag group of wandering... They came from Egypt. They came from Mitzrayim, right. They came from Egypt. So <clears throat> what are they used to? They used to big buildings, <laughs> right? Big sacred sites. It's like, you know, Christians in Europe. Every 10 feet, a magnificent church somewhere. It's like when you go traveling, you go anywhere in Europe, you can't, can't skip all the churches because they're like monuments, right? Big, gorgeous, amazing churches. You know, we were in, uh, where were we the last time? We were in uh, Portugal. And it's like every other building is a church. You know, Spain, every other building is a church, was a mosque, was a synagogue. <laughs> and they keep flipping them over. Yeah. Comes from a different place. <laughs> okay. God was on top of the mountain. Right. Far away. Moses was up there, just Moses talking to God. Yeah. Here now we have the idea of the Jewish people on earth and God dwelling among them. And so in many ways it, it, it brings God into their everyday lives <laughs> and into the people rather than being the voice of whatever that was on top of the mountain. Beautiful. <clears throat> in When they were slaves in Egypt as we recite every Passover, as we're <coughs> reading the Haggadah, what were they forced to do? Build. build. What were they forced to build? Temples. They were building pyramids or whatever, temples, monuments, to, monuments to all those Egyptian gods, right? <coughs> so, here, we have this fundamental shift, communal shift, where God says, okay, when you were slaves, you had to build for Pharaoh tributes to Pharaoh. There have been countries where their leader is really all about himself in the past. So, uh, and everything everything was about his aggrandizement, which is really what Pharaoh building all these monuments is about. You know, I'm the greatest... God, king, God, human God in the world, and so everything's about me. Here, God says to Moses to command the people, now you no longer, now you're free. And now as free people, you can build something sacred for yourselves where I will be present. Where the real God shows up. Because I'm the real God, says God. And, you know, as I've said before, part of the whole Exodus drama is this cosmic arm wrestling contest between Pharaoh, the pretend God, and the real God, who is the God of the Israelites, who's the God who gives the Torah, who's the God who's speaking here in in our sacred text. That's part of that whole drama. And in fact, several times in the text, God literally says, the reason that I'm doing all of this is so you'll know I'm the baddest God out there. I'm going to beat the crap out of Pharaoh. I mean, literally, it's what it says, other than the crap part. But I'm going to, that's why all these signs and wonders are happening, 
so that everybody will know through all time that this is a fake God and this is the real God and I'm the God of everybody there isn't a God for Egypt and a God for Mesopotamia and a God for Syria and a God for and a God for and a God for even though everybody had their own little gods and their own names and their own totems and their own idols and their own stuff what our sacred text constantly, which is why the watchword of our faith is the Shema that we say everywhere and I dare say that if people know any Jewish prayer that are Jews it is most likely (coughs) the Shema and if they travel around the world and they go to other synagogues in whatever countries they may be they'll hear the Shema and go, ah, I'm home Touchstone, like a touchstone, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. The oneness of God, the unity of God, is to say, God isn't one, many, God isn't all these places and all these things and all these names and all these statues and all these whatevers. Whatever God is, is the same forever, all. The Creator, which is why the Torah begins where it begins, after all. Why doesn't the Torah begin with Abraham? Because the Torah is the story of the Jewish people. Abraham, first Jew. Why does the Torah begin? Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. The beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why does it? This is an actual question. So why does it? <clears throat> What's the point? Why does the Torah start that? That makes that God, God of everything, created. Yeah, I mean, it starts with there was nothing. And God showed up and went, okay, I'm going to create something. And of course, that's why the mystics love this Kabbalistic stuff. You know, the mystics talk about, uh, also in relationship to what I'm about to share with you, uh, Tzimtzum. The the mystics have this beautiful, beautiful notion of Tzimtzum, which means contraction, literally, in Hebrew, because... You know, logically thinking, if God filled all the space in the universe, because God was everywhere, then how could God create anything? Because it, there wasn't any room, because God was everywhere. So, in, according to the Kabbalists, the mystics, God voluntarily contracted God's self to create some space into which God could create stuff, because otherwise God filled all the universe. The whole earth is full of God's glory, says the Bible and you know Psalms and all that. So and the whole universe. Exactly. God, the Torah begins with Bereshit, Elohim, God in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, because heavens and earth is everything. Literally. That's all there is. Heavens and earth. I mean that's what that phrase means biblically. In biblical Hebrew, Shemayim Ve'aretz, we know Ve'aretz is all of us and everything here, and Shemayim is everything out there. So in the beginning, God created everything. That means this God that we're going to keep talking about is the creator of everything, everybody, every, everybody's story. There isn't a God bigger than that God, whether they're Pharaoh or anybody else. So that also, because of course this is our personal little story and our personal document, to be fair... The other reason that we, somebody wrote this after all, the other reason that whoever the author was, were, author was, started with, this is the God who created everything, is that when we get to Abraham, and God says to Abraham, you're my special guy, right? And God says to Abraham, you and all your descendants, to you and all your descendants, I'm going to give this piece of property, this Eretz, this land, the Holy Land, the land of Israel. Here we are, how many thousands of years later? Still having arguments over that same little plot of land. But the Jews go, hey, look, haven't you read our thing? Haven't you read? Don't you know who gave us this deed to this land? It wasn't just like some local farmer, although it was. It was the Hittite who sold it to Abraham. But other than that, it wasn't just some local guy or some local king. It was the God who created everything. That's the power that said, oh, this piece of this thing is yours. Honey, sweetheart, I'm giving this to you. Literally. So we start with that so that when we get to all of these relationships that we have with God, we know of which God we are speaking 
who has literally the power and the authority because it's the God who created everything. And the God who can practice tzimtzum enough to show up to have an intimate conversation with Moses and ultimately to show up here here for those who are listening but can't see I'm pointing to a board on which I sketched something very poorly as I'm a terrible artist that was the outline of what's being described in this week's Torah portion and ultimately the Holy of Holies where, where the Ark is and where the tablets of the Covenant are where God's going to show up and schmooze with Moses and Aaron for the next 40 years while they're wandering out in the desert. The issue of God dwelling yes. dwelling or resting among the people, mm-hmm. to me this is kind of like the answer to a question we haven't had mm-hmm. and the first of many answers that the Jewish people came up with, the question being how can what can we do to have God among us it started here, later it was the temple later in rabbinic times yeah. okay, it became prayer and here and we today are today we wonder with healing the world and all the other things, what do we do to have God, if you want dwell among us to be godly it's the same question, it's just a different answer at a different time yeah, it's Evolving. interesting yes it is, uh, the, the rabbis have this interesting phrase that when they read make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them the sages wrote hiktim trufa lemakah which is a a Hebrew phrase that means that uh, God provided the antidote before the people got the disease (laughs) Um, so this is the antidote this is the antidote the question is what's the disease (laughs) the disease say the rabbis because it was later was sort of spiritual sickness, disconnection from God, becoming so full of ourselves that there's no room for holiness. Um, And so we need to discover the Shekhinah, that indwelling presence of God, the same Hebrew word, and I will dwell, that dwellingness that will follow us if we're open to it, wherever we are, to receive the healing from that disease that we've had. Yeah. Is that this is something concrete. Instead of an idea in spirituality, this is a concrete thing. Not like an idol. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that you can see and feel and use. Yeah. And they were used to the physical. They were used to some structure, some thing. Matters. I mean, that's why I said big churches, big monuments. Yeah. I was also thinking they were used to congregating together, but in Egypt they congregated together. You know, building pyramids. Here they're going to be congregating together to be where God dwells. So it's kind of you have to congregate in order to experience God. Well, community. We're we're all about community. Yes. It wasn't one rich guy who built this. In fact, everybody's obligated. You know, it's part of the 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 wonderful drama of the Torah is that it says there's that half shekel tax everybody has to give from the richest to the poorest everybody has to be a participant in it and then those who can give more give more just just like now just like here just like always just like every nonprofit, just like every synagogue and every church you know we want everybody to participate um, and, and of course the rabbis in the Talmud Famously, say everybody has to give tzedakah, even those who receive tzedakah still have to give tzedakah. You know, and that's all about, you know, that's all about this that I gave out a year or so ago. Know your worth. It's it's all about personal dignity. You know, that that giving gives you dignity, and which is why, by the way, I skipped right by it, even though I read it that the very opening sentence says Yikhuli truma me'et kol ish right bring me gifts um, but the Yikhu is sort of take it's really take and it's take gifts 
And the rabbis say, because we often confuse where the real value is, it, it, the value of the spiritual value of tzedakah is in the act of giving. And that truma, which is the Hebrew word for here for, you know, for a gift, essentially, this is, the, this is a, a, a singular moment of transformation for the entire community where they are invited to elevate their spirituality because the root of truma is resh vav mem, ram, which means to go higher. To elevate yourself spiritually through your giving. And so this is God's gift essentially to the people of allowing them to give to God, who doesn't need anything. After all, God doesn't need a sanctuary stumbling around in the desert or anything else, right? I mean, that's by the very nature of whatever anybody thinks God might be. God doesn't need gifts. And yet, God says, bring me gifts. And the rabbis say, it's not about God, it's about us. The bringing of gifts is about our hearts. So it's bringing you gifts, maybe also. Yes, yes. It's like, you know, take from yourself as you take to give, you elevate your own spirituality. And everybody who's a giver, which is pretty much everybody in the room, who gives to one thing or another knows that. You know, it's not just that I like to see my name on a building, or I like to see my name on a in a brochure where they list all the people who are donors, which, by the way, I do. I mean, I do like to see my name when I've given something. I love that. It's like, oh, it's the same reason I insisted against some in our community who, who very beautifully said, you know, gifts should be anonymous. We shouldn't have little plaques places that say this was given by this person and this was given by this person. I totally understood it. It was a whole conversation we had when we were building the building of acknowledgement or not, or not acknowledgement at all. Not just out there, but you know, if you go in the sanctuary, we quote sold um, rows in the sanctuary to people for, I don't know, $25,000 or whatever it happened to be at the time, and we put their names on, you know, on the, you know, and see them hardly, but they're on the sides of each of those, the, the people who did. We named them after tribes of Israel because we're all about community, and we put them there. But we had a real serious conversation about, well, sh- shouldn't anonymous, isn't that the highest form of giving? Shouldn't people just give because their hearts lean in, as it says in the opening sentence of this portion, and we shouldn't acknowledge them? To me, which may be true, I wouldn't argue with that, but to me, it's back to publicizing to everybody and to the next generation and the next generation, things don't just appear. They only appear because all of these people are willing to make them happen. That's why the names are there. The names are there for a re- to teach the lesson and pride because I guarantee every time somebody, someone's kid sees his parents or her parents name or their own name on a wall of giving there's a sense of pride of participation and connection and and inspiration inspiration. that matters so to me i insisted you know do it some way but i insisted and i always do you know doing that and you know uh i mean i'm of whatever finances so i'm not a big giver to anything but Dee and I like to contribute to the Wallace Theater and the Broad Theater and the and the Geffen, where we go. And I like the fact that our name is actually in the program with all those names of people who give. And it says Rabbi Stephen Dee and Rabbi Stephen Carr Rubin, because I like anybody open and say, "Oh, look, a rabbi is contributing to this." You know, I don't know who I am, but I mean, because I think those things matter. Those things matter. And it's not about anonymity. It's about community and standing up and saying, I'm a part of something bigger than myself, which this also is about, creating these things. So, for, I'll share a midrash with you, which I didn't pass out. From Exodus uh, Rabbah, from uh, one of the oldest midrashic sources. When the Holy One said to Moses, make me a sanctuary said the rabbis. Moses was shocked and said, the glory of God fills the heavens and earth, and yet God tells me, make a sanctuary. 
Furthermore, he looked into the future. Moses could look into the future, according to the rabbis. He looked into the future and saw that Solomon was going to build a huge temple, which was so much greater than this sanctuary, and would say to the Holy One, Solomon would say, because this is from 1 Kings now in the Bible, but will God really dwell on earth? Even the heavens to their uttermost reaches cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. It's a quote from Solomon. A humility quote from Solomon, <clears throat> Solomon the Wise. Said Moses, if that's what Solomon says concerning the holy temple, which is so much greater than the sanctuary, how much more is that true of this sanctuary? How could this possibly hold God? The Holy One, God, then said to Moses, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Just put 20 planks on the north side, 20 planks on the south side, 8 on the west... Furthermore, I'll descend and contract my Shekhinah into one Amah, one little space, by one Amah, a little square, and I'll show up right in here. That's the Midrash. Back to what could possibly contain God. It's a stupid thought. You know, I mean, it's foolish. God says, Tsimtsum, I can show up in your heart. I don't need a building. I can show up in your heart. If your heart is open, that's why the opening sentence says, again, and you thought I might read more, tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts. You shall accept gifts from me from every person whose heart is so moved. Right? Asher yidvenu libo, whose heart is moved. When your heart is moved, you become a sanctuary. You become a mikdash ma'at, a small sanctuary. So. Isn't there something in the Torah that says when people gather to study Torah? Yes. There is something definitely in the Talmud that says when two or more people gather together to study Torah, God shows up here with us. So what I drew here is the <clears throat> you probably can't see what I drew here poorly is the uh, and if you had this other book if I had them all for everybody there is a in the Red Torah Commentary they have a sort of picture of it themselves that someone drew <clears throat> this is called Malechet HaMishkan the work of the Mishkan um, Mishkan just means in Hebrew literally means dwelling place but it became the tabernacle. You know, it's the name for the traveling sanctuary. And it, there's two sections of it. It's a tr- uh, rectangle. The first one is sort of the public one where there was a big altar where the sacri- literally physical sacrifices of animals took place and a laver where they washed themselves and did cleaning and things like that. And then there was a curtain and there was a, a space and then sort of the inner courtyard and this other rectangular building that was divided in two, where the priests go in. And, and in there were, was a, an incense, first an incense stand. And on, if you walked in, on, according to the Torah, this week's Torah portion, on the left, there would be a, the menorah. There it is, on the wall behind us. Our own version of the menorah. Um, the menorah is, someone asked earlier, <clears throat> literally the oldest Jewish symbol, physical symbol we have. The oldest uh, co- Israelite coins that have been found by archaeologists contain that's, that's the symbol that's on them that let them know it was, in fact, Israelite was the menorah, the seven-branched menorah that is what's described in this week's Torah portion among other places, described several times, but this is the, we get it here, <clears throat> all the lights. So there's lights lit, the, it's, like, it's like a light offering on one side, there's a table for bread, the bread offering, we go from the spiritual, light is a symbol of divinity and holiness and spirituality, and, and of course in our sanctuary, our eternal light is uh, <clears throat> that beautiful oversized uh, glass sculpture uh, done by the lovely artist in San Francisco um, is powered by solar panels on the roof. We have three 
two or three solar panels on the roof over here, whose sole purpose is to power the eternal light. The Nirtami, we thought that that would be the most eternal version of an eternal light that we could get, which would be to have a solar-powered eternal light. We were the first on the West Coast, anyway. I think the second in the country, maybe the time that was one in Massachusetts that had a solar-powered a little more popular now, but this has been this was built in 1997, so it's been a while. Um, <clears throat> this uh, Nertamid, by the way, which is here, this lamp hanging over your heads, um, was uh, given to us by uh, by an antique dealer who just called me up one day out of the blue and said, "I have this uh, this chandelier, this candelabra that was." Uh, evidently used in Bavaria in a home that was used as the synagogue for that community and do you want it? So of course I said yes, I, I didn't know what it was and then this showed up, which was kind of remarkable it's silver um, and it was a candelabra at first so we wired it and used it here uh, to f again, the same reason, to continue a tradition, a history of this is an object that was used in in Europe as a s eternal light for a synagogue in a home, allegedly, it certainly is here. So, so he, in, in when you get into the next sacred space, first you have incense, you have bread, you have light. The incense is sort of a connection of the two to me. And then there's a curtain called the parochet. This is the same name parochet that's used. Um, in synagogues for arcs that have a curtain, the curtain that uh, behind which is the Torah is called a parochet, right? And from this, from this week's Torah portion, that's where the name comes from, parochet here. And then inside is the ark, and the ark, according to our this week's Torah portion, the ark that has the tablets uh, that Moses brought down, allegedly. On each side, this is just a symbol, obviously not a drawing. On each side it's, uh, of the ark, facing each other, are what in Hebrew are called krovim. Cherubim, we say, or something, I believe in English is how it's translated, krovim. Interesting <clears throat> for a people who have a strong prohibitions about creating physical images of things that the Torah says you should have these creatures with wings, literally with wings on each side of the ark facing each other and that's where God starts showing up when God comes to speak to Moses like that's a Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember that? That's where all the sacred energy is right there in this space of the ark on top of where the the, uh, the tablets are, where these krovim are staring at each other with wings, these creatures, these mythical sort of interesting creatures. So, for those of you who either read ahead or um, or may have memories, when's the last time we ran into krovim ever? Anybody remember when we ever ran into krovim? Garden of Eden, exactly. Give that young boy an A in the class. You may recall, or if you remember the song, Got to Get Back to the Garden, um, that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, what did God do? Kicked them out and stationed Krovim at the end, guarding the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword, in fact. Krovim, that's where they were. Interesting. Krovim were there, and now all of a sudden they're here. Uh, again, showing up. And as the rabbis, because this is how rabbis interpret things, the rabbis said, oh, garden's gone. We have a new garden. It's the new garden of Eden. They're now guarding the spiritual garden of Eden, not the physical place that might be the Garden of Eden to what the Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, ends up symbolizing for people even today. If you use the phrase the Garden of Eden, what does it evoke? Why, why do people use that phrase? 
What's the point of hmm? perfection? Yeah, it's like Peace. what's the Garden of Eden? Gotta get back to the Garden of Eden. Why? It's sort of the ideal. It's the ultimate, right? It's like a place of peace and harmony where we stop killing each other and where lions lie down with lambs and, you know, and stay away from snakes and things like that. You know, so this becomes, say the rabbis, this is God's reminder that now they're guarding a, a sort of spiritual Gan Eden. That when you connect with Torah with what God is is commanding us to do in this story from Sinai, you experience a sense of your own Gan Eden. You can have a Garden of Eden can can stay with you, can travel with you. That's the other thing. This is a traveling show, right? This is not the temple in Jerusalem. Where even today we have an outer, outer, outer wall that we call the wall that everybody fights over. But, you know, there's some physical thing that's not going anywhere. This was the Schlepper's sanctuary, because we're going to schlep it for 40 years. You know, and then we're about to hear next week uh, that when do we go? Well, it's going to be a cloud by day and a fire by night. And when God wants to move, the cloud moves and we then go oh, time to move and we pick up the, all of our stuff and we move it this is all something built that then can be torn down and everybody have their own job to carry things and then we, we schlep them and we, we produced this we produced all of this in our own way in our own sanctuary consciously the colors even of the same room here the colors were to be evocative of Sand and desert and wandering in the desert. The oversized near Tamid in there, the eternal light, and that acoustical cloud that hangs in the, in the middle of that sanctuary is to symbolize the fire by night and the cloud by day. The names in the sanctuary are the names of the tribes of Israel. That was the first 12. There's lots of 12s in there to symbolize community, the star on the wall has 12 triangles as you know to make up that Magen David that star and the colors in the star are taken from the description that's coming up uh, in Exodus of the stones to be on the breastplate that God just asked people to, co- to collect and to contribute so there were and then assuming they get literally the names of those 12 stones that are going on the breastplate, which we have on one of the breastplates that's out there. And when we built the building, the architects took the names of those stones, found the matching colors, and put those colors there and up here, right? If you're sitting over here, you can look up and see the same colors because we have the same 12 little stained glass windows up here that are over there, literally taken from those same 12 stones to make this... Here we are in a modern building pretty modern, modern building yet with references to thousands of years of wandering in the desert. And even the structure the structure of the the shape of the sanctuary, the roof and how it was built was to be a kind of a mishkan, kind of a traveling a sense of traveling that and also they, the architects loved the all the images they had, some of which are around here around on the walls here, of those wooden synagogues in Europe that were built and they sort of wanted to create this sense of connection to the past in various locations as well Um, in any event oh and by the way when you look in the sanctuary just because I'm talking about it the very top the very top of the sanctuary is a silver leaf there's a silver very top in there which is another Kabbalistic reference <clears throat> that we don't write up anywhere, but that's what it was, because one of the other things in the in mystical literature is the Jewish people are compared to the moon, and silver was a moon symbol, because our fortunes wax and wane like the moon, say, say the mystics, and so we we had the the top of that is this sort of a, another version of a symbol of the Jewish people. Did the architect know all this, or did you... Uh yeah, well, they did research, and we had lots of conversations, and you know that was the that was the fun part for me of being involved. 
um, talking about these different symbols and how we could inc incorporate them in their own modern architectural vision, which I, I think they did a great job. And, and in fact, the whole, the whole sanctuary is designed to reflect Reconstructionist sort of philosophy and, and thought that the focus is on community so that we designed it so that, uh, you know, in case you hadn't noticed, or I haven't said this ad nauseum, when you walk into the sanctuary, you're going up. You, the floor of the lobby is lower than the floor of the sanctuary. You literally, everybody walks up a ramp to get into the sanctuary so, and you'll because we don't have a bima there. Like, most synagogues have a floor and then you go upstairs and then there's a bima, there's a raised platform upon which the ark and everything is on. We did it a different way to reinforce community. When you're literally walking up to the bima, the whole room is the bima. We are all on the bima together in that sanctuary so that we can have raked seating and whatever because we're all there together. We're all up on the bima. It's a communal bima. Um, that's as if we're all able here on this drawing to everybody, not just the priests, because we had priests then. We don't have priests anymore. We have rabbis who are just teachers and whatever. So we're all equal in this sense. So we're, it's as if we're all going into the sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies. So that's how we created that space. But we did it with consciousness of being a part of a tradition, of a history that goes back to this week's Torah portion, Truma, which is why on the dedication plaque out on Muskingum that when we dedicated this building there is one phrase from the Torah on it and that phrase from the Torah is this one make me a sanctuary that I'm Hasuli Mikdash for Shekhanti Betocham that phrase that we just read over and over build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them is the phrase that I put outside on our outer wall on that plaque when we dedicated the building. The, we are doing this. You know, and that makes a big difference. We're not just like, um, we're doing this. We are fulfilling a mitzvah of, of more than 3,000 years ago that in this week's Torah portion, God commands Moses to tell the people. And by doing that and by reading these words and acknowledging that, we are saying, this is us. Oh, good title for a TV show. This is, this is us. This is still us, which is why Jewish mystics always say all Jewish souls were standing together at Mount Sinai, and when someone, quote, converts to Judaism who wasn't raised Jewish, it's because there was a Jewish soul born into a non-Jewish body finding its way home again. It's, not, it's the way they like to think. But, you know, the idea of that well, this is us, that we're still connected. We're not a different people. And no matter where we came from, every time we study Torah and we find our own modern reflection in something that is so ancient, we are affirming our sense of belonging, which is what gives Jews our identity.